Live from the home office of Ag Solutions Network, it's the Ag Emerge Podcast. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soils, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottoms. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Well, welcome today to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm here with Monty Bottens. I'm Kim Sheese, and we're excited to be back together again and sharing some great information with all of our listeners. Today, we are joined with Carrie Crum. Carrie is a customer account manager for California Ag Solutions, and Carrie does a lot of exciting things, but I'm going to let Monty just jump right in and... Well, Carrie, uh, first off, you might explain a little bit what uh, a customer account manager is. There's, you were saying earlier, there's quite a range of activities from, from the soil to psychology and everything in between. Talk to us a little bit about who you are, what you do on a daily basis. Okay, uh, so my name is Carrie Crum, um, and as you mentioned, I'm a customer account manager from California Exodus in Madera, California, and uh, kind of smack dab in the center of the California San Joaquin Valley, which is supposed to be the one of the number one agricultural areas in the world. So we have the job in front of us of taking farmers from conventional type farming practices and advancing them to concepts and principles of improving their soil health, uh, improving yield, uh, quality of their crops, and also kind of changing their operation for the better overall. Um, so I, I get to work with growers at all different stages of the process, from the, the first-time contact to growers that have been with me since I started uh, at, at California Ag Solutions. So what I do in the field is we, we take these kind of regenerative ag principles and we apply them to large-scale operations to help them uh, understand that, that these principles, by employing them, can improve their bottom line, which is generally their, their initial motivation. And then as they see the benefits of the programs that we put in place, they start to see the, the benefits of the soil and the overall operation. So, I mean, it's really, it's really an enjoyable job that I have every day. I, I get up every day uh, motivated to go out in the world and, and, and help make change the face of agriculture in California, which is, is a pretty, pretty fun job. That's great. Now, yeah, for those who are the type A personalities that don't have a lot of time in life and they want to know just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, what would you say is the one thing you want people to take away from the podcast today when we're all we're all done with this? What would you say uh, the one thing that really comes home to you that you really want people to understand and take advantage of? The change, while it's scary, is, is something that will benefit your operation. We have to stop looking at tradition and looking at the neighbors and looking at your outside influencers and start looking at your individual operation, learning that it's a complete system from beginning to end and that... Um, if we focus on the foundation, which is the soil, uh, it, 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 will, it has the ability to change uh, not only our operation, but our area, our county, our state, and eventually the world. So, I mean, that's really the bottom line. So, talk a little bit about your background, uh, you know, where, where you're from, where you grew up, how you got involved in agriculture, and, and just kind of what, what's transpired to get you to where you are today. Well, it's interesting. The, the where I'm at today is not at all where I thought I would be when I started. I grew up in a small agricultural town in Central California called Reedley, California. And Reedley's uh, claim to fame is that it's the world 
center for peaches, plums, and nectarines in the United States, which actually makes it in the world. So I grew up uh, in the house of my father was an agriculture teacher. Uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mom. So I was, well, I was not from a farming family. I was, I've been involved in agriculture from my earliest memories. My dad mostly started me in the, in the shop and taught me how to weld and taught me how to build things and fabricate and fix things. And then I got my first job in ag at 14 with a, a friend of ours family had a large stone fruit operation and, and myself and two of his sons would uh, prune uh, peach trees in the wintertime and I started when I was 14. So from there I went to California State University in Fresno. I worked on a degree in plant science with an emphasis in viticulture. So I learned a lot of good things there. Uh, and from there I went directly into, I learned I had a knack for sales. So I was, uh, I entered into the fresh produce business and was a salesman in multiple capacities from I started off in the, as a wholesale in wholesale business then I went to a large agricultural shipping company called Sunworld whose big claim to fame is they brought about the seedless watermelon into the market today so I was I was kind of in, involved at that time in the early 90s there and I progressed from there to become a sales manager uh, for a table grape and tree fruit company and then from there I became uh, I started farming on my own I developed a 100 acre uh, stone fruit operation growing mostly plums and a few peaches uh, I started from scratch. I was also a sales manager for this uh, company that shipped grapes and, uh, and tree fruit from uh, Reedley as well. And then from there, uh, I started my own business in 2005 and operated that for 10 years. And then, unfortunately, we got caught up in a, uh, in a, in a frivolous lawsuit that uh, was brought by another company from some people that we hired that ended up uh, ending our operations there. So at 47, I transitioned. I was really kind of burned out on the produce business. It was a relational business. The internet and texting and, 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 and emailing kind of eroded the, the relationship base and it's, it's more about, I started dealing with more and more people that knew nothing about what they were doing. So at 47, when I closed my business, I decided that I want to get back into, I want to continue to be sales, but I want to be back on the production ag side. So I searched around and I, I was lucky enough to find a position with California Ag Solutions in Madera. The thing that appealed to me about that operation is that there's really no other company in California that does what they do. A company that focuses on plant health, soil health, system, a, a complete system approach to fertility. All, all we do is focus on fertility, so we don't do any any other uh, herbicides or pesticides. And, and we really are a company of change. Uh, people try to, people, people always ask me, what is California Ag Solutions? And the, the, simple, the simple answer is we're a fertility company. They all understand that. The more complex answer is that we're really an education company. We're a company that focuses on educating growers about their production system, where it's at, identifying their trouble spots, looking, coming up with solutions to move them forward, and then I'm right with them. We're with them every step of the way as they make each step forward. So um, we deal with a lot of change. We do a lot of psychology with growers to help them understand that they're going to have pushback from their partners, from their their neighbors, uh, their marketing companies, um, their their other ag professionals, or their pest control advisors, everybody looks at what they do and has an opinion, and most of those opinions are rooted in tradition. And we bring about change, and change is never easy. So it's pretty exciting to be able to take a grower and guide him to the first step of change, and then and then see him progress slowly down the down the path. And and uh, it's it's amazing when we get three or four years down the road and we look back at where we started and where we're at, and it's it's a complete completely different operation, which is pretty cool. 
Well, I've really enjoyed getting to know you, Carrie, and, and spend time with you in the field and in the truck. And it's been uh, really refreshing to see your perspective on things. And one thing I like is that you bring, you know, actual grower experience from the 100 acres that you had, you know, the background and ag education from, from your dad involved, and I'm sure FFA, 4-H, and all of that, you know, yep. getting kids involved in agriculture. Then on through to the produce side and looking at the marketing uh, side of that, you know, the sales side and the marketing of the finished product. So I think your perspective offers really a really unique opportunity for people to better understand and benefit from everything involved in ag. And I know you've coached me some on what we're doing in our direct marketing business, and we've had some great uh, discussions on on just what it is that we can do. So sure. I think that's a, a unique perspective that you offer growers. And um, I think that over time, as people get to know you, they, they see that and understand that and realize that, you know, you're there to help them not do something to them. So I think that's, right. uh, that's always, always fun to see. So tell me what that's like, that feeling of when you first start working with a grower until you have worked with them over one year, two year, three year, four year, how does that, how does that relationship and how does that feeling change for, for you and for what you can tell uh, from the farmer? Well, probably the, the biggest, the biggest change uh, process that we go through. So in our company, we work with multiple crops. So we deal with forage crops for dairies. We deal with almonds. We deal with pistachios. We deal with table grapes. We deal with processing tomatoes. Uh, forage crops, and alfalfa hay. So I would say the biggest change process that we go through is with a dairyman who's doing conventionally produced corn on beds, and and they're they're doing 12, uh, 9 to 12 passes to get their corn into the ground and produce a crop. So when we come and we start talking to them, the biggest challenge is getting them to understand that they're not just buying a fertility system, they're actually changing their whole production system. So it's that change process and getting them to stop the conventional tillage. Uh, I was told growers, you know, what our, what our system brings is we're not going to save you money. And everybody thinks that we're going to save them money. But I always tell them we're not going to save you money. We're just going to take the money you're spending on tillage that's degrading your soil. We're going to stop that, that process. We're going to spend the money on fertility and we're going to grow a better crop and improve your soil at the same time. And, the biggest appeal when you go when you begin this process is you, we, I tell them that we can improve their their starch, their digestibility, their feed, but also we can improve increase our tons. And, and typically, the grower is mostly focused on tons. They don't realize that the feed quality really is the biggest return on their investment. So our system significantly improves feed quality and consistency, but it also makes more tons. So that's usually where we start. And once we start to show them that we can improve the digestibility and the starch levels of their feed and the consistency, they, they're pretty amazed at the process. And so then once we improve their tons and they start to see the profitability, they start asking, they don't understand why it's changing, but they know that they want to do it more because they like to expand it. So typically we expand farther across a, a, a grower's operation and we start doing more and more acres. So my favorite place to get a grower is when I look them in the eye and I explain what we're going to do and they look at me back and they say, that is absolutely crazy. That'll never work. And that's when I hear those words. That's when I know that I'm I'm doing my job at the at the highest level. 
Well, that's an interesting uh, way to tell. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about, you know, your background in the stone fruit industry. You know, that is a completely different universe, even though it's dairies are within a mile of, of stone fruit ground, you know, compared to dairies and dairies compared to almond farmers and and compared to row crop farmers like tomato and those kind of things and alfalfa. They're, they're just all these different dynamics in California. What do you see as similar and what do you see as different and kind of what stages are different uh, crops and industries tracking on? The one thing... In the specialty crops, which should stone fruit will be one of them, growers are not as sensitive to price or costs of inputs. They're, if they can achieve a larger size or a higher quality piece of fruit, if they spend an extra hundred and two hundred dollars an acre, they don't care. I mean, I mean they care, but they but they're they're not as it's it's not an objection as much if they can see the results. On commodity type crops like processing tomatoes, almonds, even silage. These commodity type crops, growers are very sensitive to input costs. So they really want to make sure that they're going to spend money and they're going to get it back, at least get it back. And in our case, we were able to do that. The biggest thing is these commodity type crops, these growers are approached by salesmen all the time that have the best new big uh, whiz bang gizmo. I've got this juice, put it on the crop, and you're going to get, you know, you're going to get back $100. Spend $50, get back $100. And they, they continually are trying these things. They don't see the results because it's one little piece in the system. And we, we come along and help them understand that, you know, we have to look at the whole system from beginning to end. And let's look at all the little pieces and the moving parts. And then every time we add or take away something, we have to look at the result that, that's, that, that's going to happen from making those changes. And if you consistently just bring in these new pieces because we think this is good or this is good, and it, does, it doesn't work with the system. And so they're spending money, but they're not getting results. So I'd say the biggest... The biggest consistency among commodity type growers is this mentality where every salesman is selling them something that can make them a lot of money, but they don't really see the results. And, and mostly it's because nobody is coming along and telling them to let's look at the entire system, evaluate the entire system. So that's, that to me is probably the biggest challenge at this point with, with, with the sales part. So what is it like for uh, you or, or that grower who's on that journey? You know, year one, it's, it's a little tougher to get their attention and, and realize that you're approaching it from a, a holistic plan approach, essentially, of, of all their inputs, all their practices, versus just here, I'm here to sell you a jug of something, you know, which is right. how the industry's uh, really focused. What is that like for you uh, kind of re-educating a guy that first year? And then what happens after about that third or fourth year with, with your relationship and, and how you guys approach? Just how, how do some of those dynamics work? Well, so the first year is really about proving that change will work. So, so that's year one is all focused on coming on to a, a prop, piece of property for the grower, taking a piece of, uh, taking a block, implementing our system on it. They'll usually back off and let us do whatever we want. And we, we give them a budget, they approve it, and we and we and then we execute. Year one, we typically outproduce and outperform what they're doing conventionally. And they scratch their head at the end of the season and they say, Man, I don't understand this. I'm 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 not doing all these things that I was doing. I'm doing all these new things and this new system outperformed, but it must just be a fluke. Let's 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 do one more block. We'll do this block and we'll do another one. And we'll try. We'll, we'll, we'll you know, let's, let's see if we can, you know, if it was just a, it wasn't just an accident. 
So then year two, we dial in what we did on, on year one, we improve it, and we, we uh, make it more applicable to that, those, those blocks. And we replicate the success on year two. And now they're really scratching their head. They're like, man, this makes no sense. We, I, 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 again, I'm, I'm, I'm making all these changes. It, this is exactly opposite of what I've been doing. And now all of a sudden I've got, I've got multiple years of better results. I, I guess I better try some more. And so they don't, they, don't, they don't understand what's happening, but they know something is happening. Usually year three is when the big aha moment happens, when they, they've now gotten three years of results. We've done it on maybe 15 to 25% of their property. And they realize, wow, there's, this system, is, it does work. So now how do I go about implementing this across my entire operation? And that's when things get really fun because they, they begin to trust. Uh, the skepticism goes away and they start to see and feel comfortable with what's happening. And, um, uh, you know, and then they, they're looking farther down the road to, to being able to, to make, you know, wholesale changes across the board. So that's, it's, it's this mentality shift. And, and you really do this process by, by building small incremental successes along the way that builds the trust in the system. And uh, we always, I always tell growers, you know, you just, you have to trust the system. The system works, you know, do things happen? They do. But when we're there every step of the way, we anticipate problems, we can react to them and we can, you know, kind of go about them in a, in a structured manner and, and help to overcome them. We do have failures, but the important thing is understanding what failed and making the changes necessary to make sure that we, we, we can get past that failure and, and move forward. So, you know, those are all things that go that play into it. So what's that like for you personally on that year three or year four where the, the skepticism's gone and now they're working with you hand in hand about, hey, what if we did this? Or you can bounce the ideas off of each other or maybe even they're thinking ahead and you're like, whoa, you know, wait a minute. And, and you know, you're catching up to them on a few ideas. What, sure. What's that like for you personally, you know, as, as, a, as a leader, a professional providing them leadership, uh, you know, on their farm? How, how does that feel to you? What, what, is that, what does that do for you? Well for, well, for me, you know, when I was in the fresh produce business, one of the challenges in that sales process is it's such a high-paced, high-level high business that, uh, situations change every single day. So pricing moves around, market conditions change hourly, daily, weekly. So if you stumble, customer is more likely to go to another source very quickly because while they have trust and relationship with you, sometimes you don't have access to the solutions they need. And so then they'll, they'll leave you to go to somebody else. The, this sales process is completely different because once, once the skepticism from the grower goes away, now the real responsibility settles on my shoulders because now we have to actually hold them back because a lot of times you get them changing so fast, they're looking for all these new things and all these... So, so once a grower once a grower starts to make these changes, amazingly enough, all of their other professionals who've been advising them for years, now all of a sudden have all these neat new things that they can tell the grower that, that works because now they see that he's receptive to new ideas. And that's when we actually have to hold the grower back and say, okay, we need to stop with the change now, and let's just let's just get focused on what works and what doesn't, and make small changes going forward. And once you know a grower becomes progressive, sometimes they go so far the other direction where they'll start to to have a system that works, and they just start changing it just to change for the sake of change, and because they want they want they they think that's progression. So you know, again, it's, it really comes down to planning and to goal setting and say, you know, where, where do you want to take your yields and your quality in a three to five year period? Focus on that and then build a plan to get there. 
And then sometimes we have to rein them back to say, you know, we, we have to remember the plan and stick with the program. Um, so you, so you, you kind of go through this really rapid change early on, and then you get to this middle portion where they're still wanting to change quickly, and now we've kind of changed what we need to change, and now we need to start to implement and, and to build a foundation in the production system. So, it, you know, for me, I, I really enjoy that process, uh, and it's really funny to actually find myself fighting in year three and four to slow down the change when I've been this agent that's been pushing the change the first three years. So it is, it is, that is kind of, it is interesting. That is ironic. That is ironic. Well, that's a good problem to have. So it is. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, now with your, your tenure there with, with California Ag Solutions, working with farmers directly and those kind of things. What, what, what are some of the things that you're proudest of? Um, some of the accomplishments that you've seen, some of your accomplishments, maybe customers have told you about, or just things you've seen in the field or, or personal accomplishments that just stand out to you? Well, I'd say one of the one of the things that I'm, um, as far as the system that we put in place, is I'm really proud of. A couple, two, three years ago, we had a training session that you put together for us back in uh, Denver, and we you brought in a bunch of different people to talk about cover cropping, which in California is not much of a thing. It was done in isolated cases, some crops more than others, but certainly in the crops that we work with, you don't see you didn't see much cover cropping, and it really appealed to me, and I started to see the the opportunity to to really tap into that that concept that Ray Archuleta talks about that focus on biomimicry where we're trying to replicate what's happening in, in nat natural biology in nature as and putting it back into the agricultural production system. So taking that idea and that concept and bringing it back to California, we built a system that's never been done before in California where we added a cover crop on dairy systems in between their summer corn and their winter wheat. There's about an 80-day window in there that we can grow a crop with a completely different diversity. We can improve soil health, improve biology, uh, remove additional nitrogen, which is a problem here uh, on dairies. We have excessive nitrogen. Uh, we can also create a crop that we can feed the dairy cows. We can improve water holding capacity, improve organic matter. It's, it's really kind of a neat thing. The challenge with that is you've got a brand new system that's never been done before. And so with your help and Silas Rosso, our other owner here, we began this journey to build this system. We partnered with Green Cover Seeds out of Nebraska, who helped us with uh, uh, building these these cover systems. And then we went to work tinkering. And we've been tinkering now. This is going on three years. This uh, this third year, we're, we have drastically expanded. The first year, we did 400 acres. This year, we're going to do probably 4,000 acres of, of, with this system. And it's very successful. Uh, we're really happy with it. And, and I feel uh, we are seeing results in the soil. We're, we're increasing organic matter two, three times. Uh, and, and even the UC staff out here, uh, soil scientists have told us that, we, that it's not possible to increase organic matter in California soils as quickly as we are. So obviously we're learning something and doing something that, that they're telling us can't be done. So so that's pretty fun. Really just getting growers to to have faith in us and our system has been a real, a real uh, enjoyable uh, thing. I, I get up every day I did not realize I was I, I had such a passion for change. You know, everybody has a job, and you go out and you do your job, and you and you grow your business, and and you and you constantly get better. In this particular case, what I found is I really enjoy and have a passion for helping change. And you use the term constantly, which is a great term, is shifting the paradigm. And and we really are out in the in, in on the face of California agriculture in these areas, and we're changing the paradigm, getting people to see things different, which is which is really really pretty fun. 
So introducing those cover crops out there, especially on dairies, we'd gotten down to the point with nutrient management regulations to where we're growing, you know, corn, wheat, corn, wheat, corn, wheat, corn, wheat, and it just kept going on and on. We had grass after grass after grass, and it's just the diversity was lacking. You know, years ago, we used to have four years of alfalfa, and then you had two years of corn. That was the typical dairy rotation 20 years ago. Right. Uh, and with uh, nutrient management guidelines and also with expanding dairy herd sizes, it just required more and more grass crops to absorb that nitrogen. And the diet really switched from alfalfa-based diet in California to a corn silage-based diet. So it's interesting to see putting that third crop in there or coming up with other ways to do things is giving you some diversity that you just haven't had before because, uh, you know, you don't see many people planting uh, mung beans and sunflower and <laughs> flax right. and, and cowpeas and stuff thing like really that in The other thing that made possible is uh, impl implementing no-till cover crops and winter forage crops. No, no, place. no, no. You, can't, to that, you we, said we the no-till word, Carrie. You know, you can't. That isn't allowed in California, don't you know? Well, <clears throat> surprisingly enough, when we went to go try to find a no-till drill to use, we had to go borrow the only one we could find in California, which the UC... Uh, UC Davis owned, and we did that in year one, and I remember uh, going out in the field and telling growers, okay, so we're going to leave the corn stubble in place, and we're going to just go ahead and, and, and no-till drill uh, your triticale, uh, your wheat, right on top of the corn stubble, and we're not we're not going to pre-irrigate, and we're not going to till, we're not going to rip, we're going to just put the seed in the ground, and we're going to put the water over the top of it, and we're going to get the same amount of yield, and they looked at me like I was absolutely nuts. Like, literally, every single person I approached told me that will never work ever and then we did it i got i got i convinced four growers to put in about 100 acres each and we went out there and while we're planting there i remember having arguments in the field like you, you look down you see the seeds some of the seeds on top of the soil and they're like this is a disaster this will never work and they put the water up we, we, we irrigated it up and about a week 10 days later i get the phone calls hey this stuff started to come up and then about a week later, it's like, hey, this stuff looks really good. And then about uh, a month or two into it, hey, you know, this stuff actually is the best looking stuff I got in the place. And then I got those growers connected and we went and looked at each other's fields and they and they all of a sudden realized that, hey, you know, this, this deal might actually have some benefit. And we went from doing that on 400 acres to last year doing about 2,500 acres of no-till. We bought a new uh, Landall drill, brought it out here, and we think we ran a thing crazy and Every in year two, everybody that did no-till had the same yield, if not more yield, on the no-till ground versus their conventionally tilled ground. We saved them about $150 an acre in production cost. So we just came out of year three of no-till on about 3,000 acres, and every block except for one that got frosted, every block out either performed at the same level as the ranch average, or per, most of them performed one uh, 10 to 15 percent above. So, and, and the other thing too is we had a lot of rain this winter. Those fields that were in no-till uh, infiltrated water at a faster rate. And we saw more water get through the fields. We saw the crop do better. Um, we saw less lodging because the plant in no-till doesn't grow quite as tall. And so we've, since we've got a shorter plant with a, with a larger head, we've got the same tons, but we've got less lodging problems. So uh, that system is really working well. And I think it's making the rate of change faster to the soil by doing strip-till, cover crop, no-till uh, on that cycle. And it's, that's really making some things happen too quickly here.
So what you're working with growers there is you've got it down to a system where the only tillage they're seeing on some of their fields, and this is a crawl, walk, run strategy you've got going on with them, trying to see how it works. But really, it's just the strip tilling ahead of the corn crop is what you've got on some of them now. So, and then your small grain winter crops are going in with the no-till drill, and the cover crops are going with the no-till drill. Correct, right. And so, applied, the with cover the targeted cropping, nutrition. what I do with a grower year one is we mm -hmm. talk about, so so when we, when we do our test blocks now with uh, strip-till and our fertility system, our power-to-grow fertility system, is now when I, I used to just come with a strip-till system and let them do their own fall tillage and do their own uh, winter forage planting, and we would just do strip-till. And that, that was good. The next step of that was doing the no-till so now we go and we present a system where we do strip-till corn, no-till triticale or winter, or winter wheat. And then the next step after that is, is implementing the cover crop and getting them into a full system. Along with that is changing their whole cropping map. The biggest challenge here in California is with the advent of triticale, uh, we've pushed our harvest dates for triticale into mid to late May. So a tr traditional turnaround time from triticale to corn planting is about 30 days. When we put strip-till in place, we can change that to about 15 days. And then we've actually taken the strip-till system on some places and actually gone to no pre-irrigation. And we actually, we actually uh, after the winter wheat, we, we strip-till, we plant dry, and we water up. And we're actually saving our turnaround time from wheat growing to corn out of the ground is probably about six days. And when you have that big of a time advantage, we grow much better corn here. So, so really... We've gone to growers now about not just changing their tillage practices, but now having them look at their calendar and saying, let's let's quit asking the question, how do we grow better corn in the summer? Now we ask the question, how do we grow the best corn? We do that by planting it early and then planting the winter forage around the corn calendar. So we're, we're beginning that implementation now, and we're starting to see a lot better consistency throughout all their crops. So... All, the, all three of these things that you've mentioned have been innovations are, are very much soil health principle focused. So, I mean, the first yes. one, no-till, uh, that you're, you know, really proud of, or I mean, cover crops was the first one you mentioned, high-diversity yep. cover crops. You know, that's one of the soil health principles. No-till, that's one of the soil health principles. And now when you're doing strip-till and, and maximizing a growing root at all time by strip-till, plant dry, water up, where you've got six days without a living root in the soil, I mean, that's that's pretty impressive things that you've done just by observation and working together with your farmers. Right. And, and again, it's, it's, it's the whole systems thing because you, first you start off with working, kind of meeting them where they're at and working, putting, implementing our system on top of their system. And then once we get some, we build those small successes, now we can introduce the idea. It's like, okay, let's start changing the calendar. Let's start changing these other operations. Let's take 25 to 30% of your operation of your fields and say, let's, let's plan for early corn. So how do we get corn in the ground in April, not in June? And that's a huge shift for them. And when you can, and I had three of my growers this year told me they were planted, fully planted with corn, the earliest on the calendar they've ever been in the last 20 years. So and that's you've had the wettest success. spring. You've had the wettest spring, wettest winter too. Correct. And, and yeah. really you had a fairly cool spring. Correct. So, I mean, yeah. it's turned hot now, but, I mean, it was it was a fairly cool spring. So, I mean, it wasn't like you had the weather helping you in making that earliest planted ever. Correct. Probably, the, again, the, the next biggest innovation that we and we actually learned by accident uh, those in are, the past. Those are always the best, Carrie, accidents. You learn the most by accidents. In the past, uh, we, we would plant corn 
on pre-irrigated ground. And then if we had to replant corn, oftentimes we'd plant it dry and then water it up. We would use it as an emergency thing. Well, last year we had a grower that we did a big project with and we did half of it pre-irrigated, which he, he, this grower always watered up his corn. So we thought we're going to really come in there and make him a bunch more corn by going back to, you know, the big traditional principle of pre-irrigation. So we implemented pre-irrigation on, on, on three fields, and then we did three fields that were uh, planted dry and watered up the way he normally does it, but we used our strip till and our fertility system. Well, on the first three fields that we pre-irrigated, which should have been amazing, were absolute disaster. We had heat damage on all of them, and the three fields that we did, we implemented strip till on and we watered up, were the, what in his mind, his, what he told me was the best corn they've ever grown in 10 years. So he decided to implement strip-till across all 1,900 acres of his corn this year, except instead of pre-irrigating like we would normally recommend, he waters it all up. So I took what I learned there, and with your and, and you, you also helped with this process, and we went out this year to other growers, and we watered up a lot of corn. And we didn't pre-irrigate. We just strip-tilled right behind the chopper, put the corn in the ground, put the water across of it, across the top of it, and up it popped. And, and to be honest with you, every single place we did that, the results were amazing. And in fact, it's really, again, I'm, I'm at the beginning of another change where I think going forward, I, I think we could be 60% of the corn that we're growing next year might be watered up corn. And I was actually, you know, I was stuck in a paradigm too because I was under the recommendation of pre-irrigate that to settle the strips down, get the salts out of the zone, and then then bring it up. And in that case, the customer, we hit just as it was coming through spike, I think it was 105, 110-degree weather, and just fried it off the ground. So it, it, it really hurt the stand. But the water-up corn don't have that problem because right. it's, it's still – it's planted shallower and it's still somewhat moist when the corn's popping out of the ground. So it's kind of a unique regional local application thing. But I think it's great how, you know, you can realize that, oops, I was wrong. There is a better way to do it. Now, how can we apply that to, to larger acreages? And I, I commend you well, for seeing that and doing it, Gary. Well, the other, the other thing we've learned, too, is, is when I first started doing water up corn, when I, when, I, when I got online, I talked to a bunch of corn geneticists and corn breeders and you and everybody else all told me that we watered up corn. We need to water, you know, because of the, the root architecture and the way it comes out, we need to plant at a minimum of an inch and a half deep to make all the roots come out where they're supposed to. And, and, and I get that, and I do, and I, and I totally, and so every, all the information I had, that's what I did. But what I found, if I plant the corn at an inch and a half deep in, in soils that might seal, mm -hmm. I end up with a problem. Right. But what I've learned now is if I if I raise that seed up to be an inch to three quarters of an inch, so it's right below or right inside the crust, that seed has the ability to spike through pretty much any crust that happens. And it's a it's it's a really unique I put that I implemented this on a on a field that I knew was gonna seal this year and I did this technique and it popped through, and it, it's perfectly fine. So I now have another technique that I can employ when I've got a, seed, a soil that I'm concerned about sealing up that works really well. So, again, the, the advantage of, of being in the ground 10 days earlier in May as far as uh, for producing corn that that's produces less lignin, that's more digestible, that's, that's more successful, that does it with less water, to me, all those, all those things are worth the risk. That's excellent. I think another comment that you made earlier was about the soil organic matter changes that you're seeing. Uh, in California, typically, because the high amount of direct sunlight and the fact that very high temperatures, the fact that we're doing lots of irrigation and intensive tillage, 
you know, many, many, many soils are are 1% or less. Some of the dairy ground that has, you know, high carbon crops and lots of manure applied to it may approach two, you know, in, in the right areas. What are you seeing uh, as a result of stuff that, you know, they say can't be done? So, and you're right. So most of the soil tests that we pull out here, we see organic matter on non-dairy ground averages between 0.7 and 1% organic matter. On dairy ground that's been heavily manured, it's around 1.5 to 1.7 in there at the most, but it's usually not all the way across the whole field. Usually that's because we irrigate with manure water, we have a lot more organic matter at one end of the field versus the other, so we have inconsistency. What we're finding with a strip-till, no-till cover crop system is in two full crop cycles, we, we can take a 0.8% organic matter containing soil, and if we do strip-till corn, cover crop, no-till triticale, strip-till corn, cover crop, no-till triticale, at the end of the triticale crop, the second triticale crop, so that's two complete years, we, can, we see those that organic matter that was 0.8 can be in the 2.3 to 2.7 range easily. And, and, and sometimes pushing 3%. So it's when we stop that tillage and we keep a, a growing root in the ground all the time, we really start to see a lot of changes happen. And so most of the soil scientists I've, I've talked to told me that those levels in California, it's just it's not possible to change that fast. And what, what really became the biggest catalyst was adding the cover crop. The cover crop is making the change happen probably twice to three times as fast than without well, and, and one of the things you're gaining out of that cover crop is the fact that you're not letting the sun irradiate the soil directly, you know, and, and you're leaving some mulch on there and, and those kind of things. Plus, you're constantly pumping carbon in. When you Correct. have those temperatures and you got microbial activity running all the time, they are burning carbon. Whether you have right. a crop there or not, it will burn it. So you might as well feed them so that you can maintain it. And plus, I imagine your water use is going down, too. Over time, or at least when you do apply water, it's getting into the ground to be able to be used by the plant and increase yield. So Correct. Oh. The, other, the other thing that we're seeing is, is, is the two things. One, as on the manure ground, we're using a lot of manure water. You know, the trouble with dairymen in California, in the Midwest with corn ground, you guys have, uh, you deal with a scarcity of nutrients. I've got a scarcity of nutrients. I need to, I need to make, put inputs in to be able to get the most crop out. Here, we have the exact opposite problem with dairies where we have an excessive amount of nutrients. So we're dealing with phosphorus levels that are five times to ten times normal, potassium levels the same. So when we can when we can stop the tillage and go to these more biologically active systems, we're actually finding that the ground is healing itself much quicker and can, and can handle more of that manure, more of those nutrients uh, better. And we're seeing improvements in water infiltration, reduction in sodium and chloride in the ground because we're able to flush better. So just all in all, it's just a, it's a huge benefit to the to the soil. That is incredible, Kim. I know you had some questions that you wanted to ask Carrie here, and in particular, I think you want to talk a little bit about um, the upcoming silage conference that he's a part of, and some other things. I'll I'll turn it over to you, Kim. Well, I do. I I'm excited to just hear about all the changes that you're making with the growers. And I'm so excited when you tell that triticale story where, you know, you guys went in there and they're like, it's coming up. And then it's, you know, I mean, what is, what does that feel like? How, how excited are you to see that kind of stuff happen? Well, uh, it's, it's really rewarding. You know, the best, the best way to describe it is, is so you, in doing the job and in implementing the changes, we're constantly pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and growers, you know, they get frustrated because I'm asking a lot of them. And 
And then what, when you turn that corner and all of a sudden they are pointing out changes to me, oh my God, you all show up and they say, oh my God, we need, I need to get in your truck. We need to go look at this field. You cannot believe what's going on out there. And so you get in the truck, you go out there and you see that this grower who was absolutely lackluster in changing when you started is now out in the field, more excited about his field and his soil and his crop than, than you are. And you've been having to push that you know, be that change agent and, and, and push that enthusiasm on him and to see him finally pick it up and grab it is, is tremendously rewarding. And, and that's when you can start to see that the changes, it's all worthwhile because the, the growers start to see that, that these systems do work and that, and that you know, uh, they'll tell me stories about their neighbors, how they just think they're nuts. And all of a sudden, when they've now in their third year growing better crops than the neighbors, the neighbors coming over and saying, hey, so kind of tell me what you're doing over here because it, it, you guys are sure putting out a lot of a, a good quality. And and, and the, those kind of things, and, and, and then the, the, our growers will say, you know, can you go talk to my neighbor? He wants to talk to you about doing something because he sees what we're doing here. So, I mean, it, it's, it's very rewarding. The, the biggest challenge that I have is, is when you take a grower and you start this process and you get him down the road pretty far, He's pretty, you're going out and doing a lot of new and exciting things with him. But then you go to a brand new grower and you got to go back to square one and you got to slow down. And it's, and you, and you're, so you, you have these growers where you're really far on the edge and you've got growers that you're starting with step one again. And I always have to remember, I have to take the same amount of step with every grower and the same amount of time to get them to that, that three and four year process. Like I have these, these growers that are more advanced. So, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of shy away from finding new growers because you don't want to go through that process again. But, but, you know, I, I try to find the reward in it because I know that I can get them, I can get them to a much better place. Sure, sure. That's super exciting. And, and it's a great segue into talking about the silage conference that you guys have coming up there in July. And I'm just wondering if what can growers expect? What is the silage conference and, and what can growers expect if they're not fortunate enough to be one of your customers, but are looking for what all the things are that's going on? So the silage conference was something we started last year. It was an experiment. In in this in the dairy space here, there's no real place that a grower can go and get new cutting edge information about uh, forage production, whether it's corn or, or winter wheat. So everybody kind of has their thing they do, and everybody knows the, the UC systems involved, and they're a little bit out of touch as far as they study what's going on. They don't really implement change. So a lot, there's a lot of technology that comes out of the Midwest and planter technology, and nutrient technology that is not being implemented in California. And that's kind of what we do as a company. So um, we put together this event. We, we approached another company named Connor AgriScience, and they basically do similar things that California AgriSolution does, except they do it on the feed preservation side. They, they sell oxygen barrier technology for silage piles. They help growers to build a rollover piles as opposed to big, tall piles to get uh, higher density and, and better better storage of their feed. So since we didn't compete, we went to them and said, we should put together an event that we can bring growers to and we can educate them on planting technology, uh, nutrient technology, and, and how to preserve it. So we called it from the soil to the feed bunk, basically, is what we try to cover. So last year we had about 120 attendees. It was great. It was an educational event. And people walked away and said, man, they got a lot out of it. So we decided now to, to implement uh, another one. We're gonna, we moved it from March into July. It's going to be held at Legacy Ranches, which is one of our customers in Pixley, California. And um, we added another partner to the to the process, and that's DeKalb Seed. 
is going to be, has a large test plot there, and they're going to talk about uh, corn genetics, the latest corn genetics. California Ag Solutions is going to talk about planter technology and really about how fertility and corn production directly relates to improvements in milk production uh, in the milk tank. And then Connor AgriScience is going to talk about uh, feed preservation. So we've got, we're going now from, from the, not only just the soil to the feed bunk, now we're going from the seed to the feed bunk. Our plan is to probably start uh, having that event twice a year, a, a March one and a July one. The, and we're going to add a chopping company that talks about chopper technology with the latest technology with um, feed analysis coming uh, on the choppers as, as, they, as they chop them in the field. We're going to add a winter forage seed company. So we're really going to try to make this event the premier event in the Western United States for, for silage. And we're going to cover a lot of different topics. The focus is really going to be an educational event. This is not a sales pitch. Uh, this, this is really designed to help growers understand what can be possible, what changes are available to them. Um, they're approached all the time on the dairy side. Um, cow comfort and cow systems, they're really not approached on, on the farming side to, to see what these new technologies are. And really the Midwest, the corn production in the Midwest is far ahead of California. And we're just taking that technology and implementing it here for the most part, making it applicable to California, which there are some, there are some similarities, uh, but there are a lot of things that have to be tweaked to make it work. But that's what this event is about, is, is getting growers, advisors, it's for nutri uh, dairy nutritionists, and it's for other support people to have them come and learn about the new technology. I was fortunate enough to attend your event last year and the sidebar conversations that went on uh, during that event, everyone was so engaged and, and uh, really in exploring all of these new ideas. And that was a lot of fun to watch that interaction going on. Well, absolutely. And from that event, from that particular event, we, we saw a lot more traction. We saw a lot, a lot of collaboration. The biggest thing, is getting these growers together and, and having them interact with growers that are doing these things and, and, and taking some of the scariness out of it. And so from these events, uh, we had that event, then we, we brought a lot of our growers to the event that Monty put on in Monterey, the Ag, Ag Emerge Conference, and we just built upon this technology. But really, uh, Gabe Brown has the saying, and I, I, may, I may say it wrong, but he says, if you want to change, if you want to, if you want to change small things, you, you make small changes, or change the way you do things. If you want to make big change, you got to say the way you, you got to change the way you, you see things. And so, really, what the corn silage event kind of builds on what the ag emerge event is is just, is helping the growers change the way they see things, and and start asking different questions. And I think the biggest challenge the growers have right now is where they keep asking the same questions and they keep getting the same answers. So, in order to get different answers, we have to ask different, ask different questions. So, we're helping growers understand that we can ask different questions to get different answers. That's great. That's an excellent point. I mean, yeah, yeah. You, it's questions are the answers, right? Uh, right. You know, and asking <laughs> you know, the right I, questions gets I you the right tell, answers. I just, I just had a meeting with a brand new grower yesterday, and we were done. He had, the, he gave me that look, like, man, this is a lot of information. And and I said, you know, I said I, the problem that, that I that we have as a company is when we leave, you have more questions than than you had when we came, because we helped you to understand. All these other questions that you're not asking, you don't, you don't even know you need the answers to these questions because you didn't know to ask them. So we start asking them questions, and it's amazing how many growers do not know the answers to these questions because that we ask, and 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 we typically know the answer. If we don't know the answer, we know where to get the answer. So that's awesome. Talk to us a little bit, Carrie, in, in closing up here on Aggie Merge, your customers and and people that that you brought there. 
What what was kind of the feedback immediately after, and yet still today, is it making a lasting impact here months later? What what do you see as a as some of the fruit out of out of your effort and their effort of being there and taking part in it? So so I had seven customers attend, all of which are are dairymen primarily, but many of them have tree crops that they grow as well. So they're they're multiple crops. The biggest thing that they got out of that, I think, is one the collaboration. I while we were there. The growers were engaged with each other. They were talking to each other. They were they were interacting with these new ideas and new concepts, and they were trying to put it in into perspective to their own operation and how they might implement it. And from that, I had a lot of my growers, most of the growers came back, and all of them doubled down on cover cropping, on no-till, uh, and, and expanding these conservation tillage practices, reducing tillage, improving soil biology, so all of them did that. The, the biggest, the other thing that came out of it was uh, these seven growers came back and on their own uh, began meeting once a, about once a month, once every six weeks together, where they, unbeknownst to me, reached out to each other, met at somebody's house for lunch, and they just started talking about these ideas and interacting. And I was not invited, and that's fine. And the main thing is, is, is that they were working together, and they were talking about and what they were doing, how they were doing it, what their successes were. And, and from that, the biggest thing that I saw was they have a support group because when they're doing these things, they're isolated and their neighbors and their professionals and all these people that don't understand what they're doing, all they do is uh, criticize. And this way they, they have a place to come together with other growers that are doing the same exact principles that are having great success and it makes them feel it, it kind of it feeds them a bit it nourishes them and it gives them the strength to go back out and, and keep walking the path so to me you know the ag emerge it's it's it has the ability to change minds but based more so in the idea of opening minds and getting them to ask new questions so really asking new questions is is probably the key of what ag emerge has done for, for us anyway that that's a great story to hear and uh, I'm, I'm glad that's what we wanted to do is we have to change the ag paradigm and it happens one farmer at, at one time and having farmers work with each other and support each other you know you supporting them and guiding them along the way you know that's how this is going to happen and it, and it's good to see that the traction is coming and it's happening faster and faster but yeah I'm, I'm really glad for all the efforts you've you've put in and the coaching and leadership you've provided for folks and, it, and it's neat to see them take up the mantle and 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 pursue it themselves you know that's just incredible like you say it, 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 it this has kind of been a long path since i came here when i came to work at california ag solutions and had my first encounters with you and silas i i did not imagine i would be sitting today where we are versus where we started so there's been a tremendous amount of change in the systems at least on the dairy dairy forage production side that we've implemented uh, as we've encountered new ideas and 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 doing testing. So we, where we're at today is completely different than where I started. And and to be honest with you, I think we have uh, as far as we've come, we have twice as far to go. That's the fun thing now is charting that next course. We've got support with growers. We're gaining ground. More and more growers are starting to implement these these techniques. And I, I really see a bright future for, uh, you know, for, for California agriculture and uh, specifically in, in dairy production. Anything, Carrie, that I should have asked that I didn't or things you want to point out or, or talk about while we're still together? No, no I just, I, I think overall, I, I think we're in a great place right now at the tip of the spear, so to speak, of this regenerative ag movement. I, th I think the biggest challenge I see with regenerative agriculture, and I, I've talked about this in the past, is 
it's it, it, we have to be careful not to let it be hijacked by organic small organic producers and and because those while they do great things large scale production is not conducive to those ideas and so we have to take these regenerative ag ideas and implement them and approach these large growers to make huge changes uh, over tens of thousands of acres of ground and we can do that but we have to we have to we cannot approach growers and make them make changes to better the environment. We have to be able to approach growers to let them understand that we can make changes and improve their bottom line. And then from that, we get to change the environment. So it's really that that idea that we have to focus on is, is how do we get these changes implemented on large on a large scale? And that's and that's what we're in the process of doing now. And it, and it's really going to take those thought leaders with the concepts and the ideas. And then it's going to take individuals like yourself to apply that and and the farmer to do it. And, and it's going to take new technologies to, to make things uh, automated and easier and, and better to implement of all those things to, to reach true, like you said, at scale, regenerative agriculture. Because we yeah, have to make a change and we need to make it quick and, and we need to do it 40,000 acres at a time, not 40 acres at a time. Right, and and the and the and the only reason why these growers change is because I, we we sell the idea that it improves their operation, and so we have to keep that in mind as we're starting to implement these these changes. Is they they have to benefit from it. If they don't benefit, they won't do it, and if they won't do it, it'll never happen. So we we have to be focused on speaking the language that they want to hear, mm-hmm. and then we get the benefits out of it as they make the changes. So you know, keeping that grower's best interest is the focus. Uh, really seems to be driving the change at this point. And I really think that's what our calling is, is to bring regenerative agriculture to the large-scale farmer. And uh, right. I think there's several others that are doing it in, in the small and, and mid-sized farms or even homestead, farmstead-sized farms. But I really think our calling is to, to bring it to the large-scale farmers in, in the number one agriculture region in the world. Uh, you're, you're right there in the heart of it. And uh, that's really ground zero for these things to take place. So, well, and that's what we see here. And 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 again, it's it's you know how do we change a hundred thousand acres or you know so in California there's twenty seven million acres of of tilled farmland, right? So if we can implement these and if we can get even a million acres with these techniques in place, it's a huge change to the environment and and to the soil overall soil health of, the, of California and the production community. So, so though that's what we're focused on. We, we work with all, every group that we can. We, we're trying to reach out and, and, and let people know what we're doing and these large-scale growers are doing and letting them, letting them understand that they, they are improving the soil and, and improving uh, the overall environment with these changes. And, and, and getting the word out is, is, uh, has been a challenge as well. So we are working on getting more and more notoriety and more uh, information out to the, to the masses. That is awesome. Carrie. it's a joy to get to work with you on a regular basis, and I'm really proud of everything that you're doing to lead farmers along the way and help guide them to, to doing things better. Uh, you're just you're doing awesome work. Thank yeah, you so much. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate you guys spending time with me today. All right. Well, there you go. It's Carrie Crum with California Ag Solutions uh, talking to us from California there in the, the largest agriculture region in the world. He's got some amazing challenges with multiple diverse crops and, and lots of irrigation and and just unbelievable uh, things to overcome. But uh, him and the growers he's working with are doing it, and they're a real example of how when you change your thinking and ask the right questions, you can get better answers. So thanks again, Carrie. Really appreciate right. it. Appreciate Take it. Care. Thank you very much. You bet.